Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and today I'm interviewing Susan Klein. And Dr. Klein is going to be discussing nutrigenomics, and I know you're passionate about this, but first things first, um, where did you go to vet school? And tell me about your veterinary career right now. So I'm a 1988 graduate of Colorado State University. Um, I went into conventional practice for about 10 to 15 years. I uh, practice up in the Vail Valley. Mm -hmm. I have an integrated practice in the Vail Valley. I do both Eastern and Western medicine as I feel they both have a place. Mm -hmm. um, I became passionate about nutrition about 15 years ago when I had a pet that had a lot of chronic GI problems. And as I started investigating how we were feeding pets, that coupled with the fact that I felt that I did not get any information about nutrition in school that was really um, something I could use. I started exploring a lot of different options, trying a bunch of different things, um, got completely fascinated around the, the field of food, and then the genomics piece came up when I was so excited about Dr. Dodds's book, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna read that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it just all started to make so much sense. Yes. Because especially with regards to nutrition's impact on genetics, you are what you eat. Mm -hmm. If you're eating bum food, you're getting bum DNA, and then you're gonna have some disease problems down the road. And so, so how do you implement this in your practice? I mean, when you, uh, you do, do you do Chinese food therapy too? Not specifically Chinese food okay. therapy. Uh -huh. um, I'm, I'm, I haven't formally trained in that. Yeah. I, will, I like to tell people that I've been trained in the lab of my clinic yes. um, in that every single patient that comes in teaches me something. Of course. So I started primarily first with just understanding the importance of a real food-based mm -hmm. diet. Um, did run into a bunch of uh, hurdles along the lines of transitioning not only that dog, but the, current, the two current dogs that I have now. Mm -hmm. Still two to trying to get them on to a better diet and again the reinforcement of why is this so hard for an animal to eat something that they ancestrally know how to eat. Yep. The epigenetics piece of it made a lot of sense to me as an explanation for that type of thing. So it's it's definitely been an evolutionary process. I've always kind of been interested in food in general mm -hmm. just for myself mm -hmm. and for my own health concerns and again in doing all this research and finding how closely connected we are yes. it makes so much sense to me about how a, a species appropriate diet is the fundamental mental piece of health, which is where I start in, in the clinic. So for these dogs that I call kind of GI butterflies, um, and not just GI butterflies, they can be sensitive skin, sensitive GI tracts, they're just sensitive. How do you help, how do you help these dogs recover uh, when they're so sensitive to everything? So I, I think that the approach has to be multifactorial because it happens for many different reasons. So in my belief system, I think that there are three dimensions that the body functions in, emotion, physiology, and structure. So as we look at each one of those, um, again, emotion along with the adrenal activation um, to decrease gut uh, function is one of the big factors here. So how do we help with that? Those would be things like Bach flower remedies, um, animal communicators have really, really been very beneficial for me. Oftentimes in the practice, if I'm not getting anywhere with the case and then we find out you know, it has something to do with somebody at home, um, changing them onto a better quality food, but working our way up to mm -hmm. it. So if they're already on, say, science diet, I might say, okay, well, let's step up to a food that's wheat-free and potato-free mm -hmm. and do this first. And then we're gonna start adding in maybe some cooked foods that are easy to digest and then gradually work them towards less cooking with the understanding too that I think animals that are in extreme states of um, sympathetic nervous system stimulation have a difficult time with raw diets. Absolutely. So yep. um, I think it's a it's very unique again to the genomic perspective of the patient and you kind of start with some general recommendations but be willing to shift and change a little bit if that's not working for you. Well and if you if any of you out there listening are like you know I've tried raw three or four times it doesn't go well for my dog there's a reason 
reason why right. it doesn't go well. If you can't eat your evolutionary diet, there's a problem. I've had many humans say, you know, I'm allergic to veggies. Not truly allergic, but um, I just, veggies don't react well with me, or I can't eat anything healthy. I do fine with processed foods, but I can't eat any healthy foods. It's not that healthy foods are toxic to your body. You have a problem in your body. Exactly. And if you feed your dog or cat its evolutionary diet and it can't, it doesn't respond well, we need to not, um, we need to look at the, the big question of why. And I think that this nutrigenomics piece is something that veterinarians, um, I didn't even know this term uh, until 10 years ago and certainly didn't learn it in vet school 25 years ago. Right. So it's something that we're kind of learning on the fly and you, you're lecturing about at the conference. What's some of the information that you presented in your lecture today? Did you go over um, the kind of the concept of nutrigenomics? What did you go over today in your lecture? So my point in the lecture today was to stay pretty general because most of us did not get any formal education in nutrition. As I was doing the research for this presentation, I was blown away about how much misinformation is out there, how it's just, well, we really don't know, so we're just going to do it this way because yep. it doesn't appear to be causing a problem. So nutritionally, it was pretty easy to find where we're going wrong in how we feed pets. Um, from a genetic perspective, it was also looking at the co-evolution process between people and animals, um, dating back to 12,000 years, and understanding the concept of evolution and its impact on our DNA, that as we move through life, we are being mostly affected by our external environment, which in the lecture I did point out, you know, keep in mind your gut and your lungs from a traditional Chinese medical perspective are external surfaces. Mm -hmm. So you want to be cautious about what you put in there, that it's not adding fuel to the fire, mm -hmm. because the biggest part of all of this is how do we control the amount of information, both physical and non-physical, that is overwhelming the body to put the body in a state of saying, no more, mm -hmm. I can take no more, mm -hmm. and then that brown rice to white rice, boom, yeah. you've got diarrhea. Yeah. So a lot of it is mostly just about who needs um, baby steps, mm -hmm. who can make a transition better, and oftentimes as a clinician, you're gonna be able to look at that patient and listening to the history um, and be able to know, okay, this one I need to go really slow with, this one I can push a little bit more, um, which supplements you mm -hmm. use, which modality you use, trusting your intuition, look at that animal and have that animal say, acupuncture is what I need, yeah. osteopathy is what I need, good food is what I need, but how do they all interact to support um, the the body and, and getting back to health. At your practice, do you start with food changes first? Like, do you switch food first? I usually do have people start first with a food change, simply because, and again, the way that I look at it is if each cell is a factory worker, um, you have to give that factory worker all of the bits Resources. and pieces it needs in order to do the job. Mm -hmm. So um, all of the wonderful modalities that we practice in holistic medicine are much more effective yes. if your little cell is stocked with all of the things that it needs. And I mentioned that question because oftentimes, and I see it more so with the general practitioner, the conventional doctor who maybe is just trained in acupuncture, which is beautiful, right. but oftentimes a lot of conventional doctors who recognize that there are some supplements that are very beneficial, they'll do a lot of other things. They'll do a lot of probiotics. They'll do all sorts of other things, but they'll never address the diet. Correct. And in my opinion, um, the, sometimes with some of these deep-seated cases, you can put a dozen supplements into a dog or cat and you can modulate their peripheral environment but in until you change the diet you're not necessarily going to get true healing. So I, I do recognize also out there and again like you say there are a lot of people who understand from a conventional perspective that something's lacking. Um, in my belief system I don't believe it's a lack of supplements across the board. Mm -hmm. um, I think that to what I see again when we're looking at everything has a frequency everything has a song so if you start putting too much nutrition into the mm -hmm. system that is as deleterious 
as not enough yeah, nutrition. Or just even confusion. Exactly. You know, you're, there's, if you're giving 27 supplements, it's, the body has to process all that. Right. And that actually not only feeds uh, energetic chaos, but the liver is overtaxed, the whole body can be overtaxed. So it's not that supplements are bad, it's that you need to use them for a specific reason. If they're not improving the, if not improving the situation, don't continue. Exactly. But supplements never replace food or species appropriate food. And feeding a food that is creating disease and then trying to patch it with supplements is not a good approach. I think both of us agree with that. Exactly. So what do you what do you see? I know part of your lecture was about dry food and a potential disease a disease state with dry food. Talk a little bit about that on the nutrigenomic level. So from a nutrigenomic perspective, if we understand that our DNA is made up of little tiny bits and pieces of protein, um, everything in our body runs on a protein-based type of metabolism. So it's really important that you are taking in proteins that your body can recognize and utilize in an efficient manner. So what's happening with dry dog food is we are sourcing ingredients that are unfit for human consumption, that involve dead, dying, diseased, and disabled. And uh, one of the horrible statistics that I came across was the 50 mil 5 million pet animals that were rendered in the 1990s as pet food. So yeah, you know, and it, that's just not something that I necessarily, understanding that the cycle of life is such that a cat eats a mouse, I don't want my dog to be eating a dead dog. So, so what's happening in the process of making your average dry dog food is it goes through um, marginal ingredients getting poured into a large vat that is heated at high temperatures, that um, basically destroys most of the core nutrition, so it is added back in its synthetic form, aka a xenobiotic, um, then it is dried and pressed into its cute little cookie cutter shapes placed into a bag with a shelf life of up to two years. So from a nutritional perspective, there's no live stuff in that food anymore, but we're putting it into a live body. So the idea of using, for right now, one of the questions as far as transitioning pets, using a good quality kibble and gradually introducing better quality pet foods so that you can turn off those genes because the proteins function in your DNA is to turn genes on and off. Um, so if you want to transcribe for healthy genes, you have to have the healthy proteins in order to do that, mm -hmm. the live proteins. So one of the things that happens as far as processed food is you get a number of byproducts when you're doing these types of things to food, the most significant being advanced glycation end products. Um, what this means in simple speak is that you've got way too much sugar in the food that is coating the proteins of the food so that your body doesn't recognize it as a food source. Um, in the body, it also sets you up for coating your own tissues so that your body, again, doesn't recognize you, and then we're starting down the path of autoimmune disease and cancer. Thoughts on why um, this will probably never be taught in vet school? Because the epigenome dictates how um, each of our individual genetic expressions are unique to us. This is never anything that will ever be able to be replicated in a research setting. Um, it will not be taught in vet school because, as I said at the end of my lecture, follow the money. Um, regardless of what industry that you're in, where's the money source coming from? Because that always dictates the final outcome of what we are being taught or mm -hmm. told. So I just don't feel that the um, veterinary school can wrap their head around nutrition because most of the people that are teaching now were in the same kind of, I'm 30 years out, same type of generation that we just, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And the field of nutrition doesn't know because right. food is a very complex biological thing. We're very complex. So when you mix two complex organisms, there is no way that you can dissect it down to this one little thing that fixes everything. So understanding and stepping back and saying, where did you come from? You know, what kind of foods was your DNA exposed to? That's the optimal diet for you. So a Malamute needs high fat, high protein. Mm -hmm. A Chihuahua can live on corn. 
So you've just got to kind of step back a little bit, a broader perspective on everything. But I think it probably will never be taught in vet school because you can't scientifically prove any of this stuff. And it's just too big of a topic because you can't pigeonhole people. And why, and why do you think that, so the concept, we're the only healthcare profession that advocates feeding entirely processed foods versus fresh foods. In fact, we're the only healthcare profession that says fresh food could be damaging, risky, or, or could harm your pet. Only feed processed food. That paradigm is so, it's, it's archaic, it's frightening, and at some point, there has to be a shift in cognitive thought. Um, do you foresee that ever coming? Or do you think veterinarians for the next 50 years will be graduating from vet schools being told that they, we should only recommend an entirely processed diet? I agree that that's what they're gonna be told, Karen. What I do believe, and I see this in my practice, is that people, the public is going to push the change mm -hmm. because people understand if it's good food for me, then how come it's not good food for my animal? Um, most people rely 100% on what their veterinarian tells them. So there is this misinformation that keeps being perpetuated, which is why it will take a very long time, I think, in the conventional realm to shift and change it. There's a lot of money being made in yes. processed food. So it's gonna be a long time before the powers that be back up and say, well, maybe we got it wrong but the public is a larger driving force. And if Mrs. Jones is really, really concerned about Fluffy and she sees the difference on that good diet, she's gonna tell somebody else and she's gonna tell somebody else. And then when they go to the veterinarian who sits there and tries to push them science diet, they'll say no and they'll, they'll walk out. You know? We're hoping someday, someday, <laughs> working when, in the veil valley. Already, yes, but yeah, it is. It's coming. Right, right. And it, but it literally is. It is one life touching another life. Exactly. It's absolutely. It's a grassroots kind of experiential relationship of you seeing the power of food in your pet and then telling someone else, or a veterinarian convincing you to try this and your life being changed. It's exactly how it's going to work. Well, and it's interesting too because as their pets get better on food, what I'm also saying yes. is people are like, oh, I'm I eating should. better now, yes. and I, you know, and it's and the parents between your diabetic pet with your diabetic owner yes. so that the ability to touch people's lives through their pets yes. because pets evolve faster than us mm -hmm. they they're here I, what kind of I tell people is figure you're gonna see four to six generations of animals in, in your, your practice lifetime. life period so if it takes three to six generations to change DNA a we're still in the game uh, but B, also, it's just going to take some time and stay with it and let the animals teach you about what works. Yeah, you know, It's not absolutely. to take away from what we learn in school, but it, what we learn in school has a, a lot of times very little to do with what we see in clinical practice. Absolutely. And it actually has very little to do. We learn a lot of theory, but yeah. what can make that animal well? What right. can heal that animal? Usually two different entire conversations. If you had to describe nutrigenomics to, I don't say a five-year-old, but if you had to explain the concept of nutrigenomics for people that have never heard of this before in to a 10-year-old person, what would you say? So I would say nutrigenomics is the science of taking the nutrients in your food and causing the blueprint that defines what your body looks like and functions like, combining those two things together so that you can maximize optimal function in your body so that you can live well long. And that is common sense, brilliantly said. And what exactly we're trying to do is integrate veterinarians by shifting to this fresh food movement. Thank you for your time and your insight on Thank this you. great topic.